On the Wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Teenagers don't have any plans for the summer? Come to WERU's Youth Radio Program. It starts on July 6th and is on every Tuesday all summer. You will learn how to have your own radio show, and the best thing is, it's free. But only eight people can come, so sign up now. To sign up, call Amy Brown at 469-6600 or email her at amy at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from The Strand in downtown Rockland, presenting bluegrass band Seldom Seen live in concert Saturday, June 19th at 8 p.m. Tickets and information at rocklandstrand.com or 594-0070. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Wapanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. I'm your host, Donna Loring, along with my co-host, Maria Gerard, director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. We will be talking about Maine Native American veterans and the resolution declaring June 21st, Maine Native American Veterans Day, signed by Governor Baldacci on April 22nd, 2009. And we will be hearing from James Francis, the Penobscot Nation's tribal historian. Uh, but before we do, I want to say a few words myself uh, to, so to set the background on this very important subject. I'd like to talk about uh, Native American veterans. Native American veterans served with honor in all of America's wars. The members of the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Mi'kmaq, and Maliseet tribes fought to help this country gain its independence from England. Since the early 1800s, the United States government had sent missionaries to the tribes in order to help them assimilate into the larger society. Indian tribes all over the uh, country resisted this and maintained their languages and cultures. This very resistance was to play a major role in winning a world war. 8,000 American Indians took part in World War I. The patriotism caused Congress to pass the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. Since Native people were fighting and dying for this country, Congress felt it only right to grant them citizenship. In World War II, more than 44,000 Native Americans served with distinction in both the European and Pacific theaters. More than 40,000 others left their reservations to work in ordnance depots, factories, and other war industries. Native Americans invested 
$50 million of their money in war bonds and contributed generously to the Red Cross and Navy Relief Societies. And let me repeat that. Native Americans invested $50 million of their money in war bonds and contributed generously to the Red Cross and Navy Relief Societies. Several hundred Native American women also served with the Women's Army Corps, Army Nurse Corps, Navy, and Marines. Native people further contributed to winning the war in a unique way. The Japanese were adept at breaking our codes. And because of this ability, they were winning the battles. It was imperative to winning the war that we have the ability to communicate with our forces without our messages being decoded by the Japanese. Navajo code talkers use codes derived from the Navajo language which were unintelligible to the enemy. While most codes were considered unusable after one day, Navajo codes were never broken. Other tribes were also used in this manner for their language. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if assimilation of all tribes were complete and all tribes spoke English only? Would we be speaking Japanese or German today? Approximately 86,000 Native Americans, 90% of them enlisted or volunteered to fight in Vietnam. Native Americans see duty today wherever our armed forces are stationed. Native American veterans were among the many souls that lost their lives since the Revolutionary War in the service of this country, protecting our freedom and our way of life. Someone once said, dying for freedom is not the worst thing that can happen. Being forgotten is. We will never forget those Native American veterans or any veteran who has died for our freedom. When I was 19 years old, I was stationed in Vietnam in the Women's Army Corps. And at that time, I wrote a poem, and that was many years ago. And the poem was called The Other World. And it was from a 19-year-old's perspective who was in Vietnam during this war and during the Tet Offensive. And I'd like to read you the poem that I wrote back in 1968. It's called The Other World. I stepped off the freedom bird into another world, a world of profound beauty, yet a world of desolation and despair. Just as a newborn babe comes into the world, so came I into a world I knew nothing of, unto a people I knew nothing of. Why was I here? I walked down the war-torn streets of the village, not knowing the answer. As I walked, I looked down and saw the tattered remains of a newspaper, and on the front page, a picture of a man holding the lifeless body of his infant son. There was emptiness in his eyes, as tears of a lifetime flowed down his face. In that instant, I knew the answer.
I was here to help save this country, this other world, and in so doing, save mine. James, are you online? I am here. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so you have done some research in the history of, uh, of uh, Native American veterans, and you also have a whole curriculum that you've developed on the subject. Uh, so, yes, so could in particular Penobscots. Right. So could you talk to us about that? Well, you know, when um, I went to work um, doing this history, because I, I felt it was really important, I found that there were, there were kind of two legs to it. And, you know, there's one aspect that looks at Penobscot people as, as a sovereign group uh, fighting for their rights. And then there's also Penobscot people, tribal citizens, who have fought in the defense of this country, America. And so there was, there was kind of the history is kind of twofold in, in that aspect. And um, when you look at the landscape that we, we live in today and we have lived in since time in memoriam, um, when Europeans came here, this landscape became a land of conflict. And not only conflict between European groups and the natives who had lived here, but also between European groups vying for uh, the right to take the land from the natives. And in particular, in this region, it was between the French and the English. And so um, in this landscape, there was a lot of vying, especially on the Penobscot River, was a, a boundary between what England considered their Massachusetts Bay Colony and what the French considered Acadia. So the Penobscot River, if you look at a map, it looks like a boundary. However, the River Valley was actually a contested area. Both of those sovereigns were claiming the right to steal that from the natives. And they were fighting pretty heavily over it. Um, actual warfare starts in about, um, I would say, 1675 with King Philip's War. What's interesting about King Philip's War, it actually begins in what we know as today as the state of Massachusetts, and it was led by a Wampanoag chief named Metacom. His nickname was King Philip. King Philip isn't a, a, a royalty of, of Europe. He was actually a Wampanoag chief, and he was the son of uh, Massasoit who was the Indian chief who welcomed the pilgrims and uh, that we know of in that first Thanksgiving story. And so it's interesting to look at that relationship of Massasoit's very welcoming and accommodating to colonists, uh, son Medicom, um, begins this war uh, in defense of his people. And so in just one generation, the relationships have degraded. You know, James, 
It, it kind of reminds me of what uh, what do you remember uh, happened to King Philip. What was his uh, demise? I, I don't know um, what happened to King Philip. I can tell you. <laughs> they uh, they well, of course, he was killed, and they cut off his head, and they put it on the pole in the village. And do you know how long they left it there? Mm-mm. Any idea? No. 20 years. 20 years. And that, that alone, to me, it just uh, signifies uh, just the inhumanity of, of this whole thing. But, but I just wanted to get that in there because that's one thing that I sort of stuck with me when I, I did some uh, historic research. But go ahead, James. Well, I only have one comment. Who's who's the savage? Exactly. Um, but you know, okay, and people here in Maine. Okay, how does how does a war that started in Massachusetts affect us here? Well, like I said, this is part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. If anybody understands Maine history, they also understand that we were a part of Massachusetts up until. 1820, when Maine became its own state, and so um, with the um, the powers that be in the Massachusetts Bay Colony did was shut down all trade to all Native Americans within their colony, and so if you were going to the storehouse to get your ammunition to go shoot your food, because by this time we've given up on bow and arrows for the more um, efficient guns, you were going to go hungry. And that's exactly what happened was they would not trade was ammunition, guns, food with the Native Americans in, in this region. And so in the spring of 1676, after 150 Penobscots died of starvation over the winter because they were unable to hunt, um, they attacked a a trading post on Arusak Island to get um, to get food. But this whole these incidents um, led to um, what was known as a hundred years of war here, and it wasn't a hundred years of war, as I said, between Native Americans and in this case, we're killing Phyllis Roy, England. It was between the French and the English. And these, King Philip's War, King William's, Queen Anne's War, Dummer's War, all leading up to the French and Indian War, uh, pitted these two European groups against each other on our indigenous soil. And as Penobscot people living here, as most Native people in this region did, we tended to side with the French. Um, French people came here and they were willing to live in Native villages, to understand Natives' ways of life, uh, intermarry in some cases, and so it uh, became a, a no-brainer to side with the people who were more accommodating to you um, than the people who, you know, for instance, you know, Weymouth comes here in 1605 and kidnaps Penobscots. That's kind of the English mentality 
you know, this certain arrogance. Um, and the French were more accommodating, so we tended to side with them and um, paid for it after um, the French lose the French and Indian War natives in this area. That really, I point to, is the beginning of the um, kind of seeing Native people as less than. starts very early, even before the birth of, of this country. In the, in the eyes of the citizens of what we call now Massachusetts and Maine. This uh, seeing, seeing the Native people as less than, uh, could you possibly attribute that to uh, the, the papal bulls back in late uh, 1400s and early 1500s? You know, where well, they, I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, absolutely. You know, and you know, one of the you know, the the other things that really attributed to it and, you know, um, was the style of warfare that Native Americans were, were quite adept at um, guerrilla warfare and which, to the astonishment and, um, you know, kind of English people thought that they were dirty fighters, you know. <laughs> and I, I kind of laughable today because you take every advantage during war to ensure that you're protected and that you get one up on the other. Um, but to hide behind trees and, you know, ambush somebody in those days were seen as absurd. That, you know, British wanted to stand on, on the hill in the field and shoot at each other. And, you know, so um, natives really kind of shaped the way that uh, Americans decided to fight. I think they were called the Rogers Rangers. Exactly. It kind of um, reminds me, James, when you said Rogers Rangers, one of the, uh, I should have brought it with me, one of the things that we were given uh, when we went into Vietnam uh, were these little cards. And it was uh, a, a code of Rogers Rangers. And it was uh, how to act and, and responses to give if questioned. And I should have brought it. But I'm sure all of the Vietnam vets uh, know well that Rogers Rangers code. So go ahead. Um, so um, during during this hundred years of war, there's um, there's certain incidences that that take place. There was a settlement on the Kennebec River, uh, known as Norwich Walk, and it's just north, uh, just up a river from the town of Norwich Walk today. The site is actually in, I believe, Madison. Um, but there was this village there, a very um, technologically advanced for the time, Indian village. They had blacksmithing going on. They had a church there and a Jesuit priest, uh, Father Rawls, Sebastian Rawls. And on um, one morning, English marched on this small Indian community and um, sacked and burned and killed everybody they could, you know, get their weapons on, and um, including Father Rawls. And um, it is, in Maine history, it's considered the Norwich Walk Massacre. That's right, because they massacred women and children, and if I remember correctly, they brought the scalps back to Boston. Yes. Yeah. And that... Scout back to Boston leads me to, you know, my next point, and, and that is, you know, later in 1755, um, still being very frustrated with Native Americans in this area, 
the Massachusetts Bay Colony issues a scalp proclamation, which puts prices on women and children's as well as men's heads. And this was signed by the lieutenant governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, Spencer Phipps. And he and it was also stamped using King George the Second stamp. And it basically says that um, you know it requires his majesty's subjects to pursue all opportunities of captivating, killing uh, all and every Penobscot Indian. 1755. This is on the eve of the birth of this country, that these people who we consider the founding fathers of this country are, you know, waging war against women and children, essentially. And so when the Americans do declare independence against England, Great Britain, um, Chief Joseph Arnold, the chief of the Penobscots, um, goes to Watertown and he um, gives this speech. And he had been corresponding with um, General George Washington. And it, it is often said in history books that the Penobscots agreed to, and other Wabanaki tribes agreed to side with the Americans against. Great Britain. But from my perspective, and from a Native American perspective, we're already at war with Great Britain. They, are, they had waged war on us in 1755, the most recent, and so the, the, the independence declaring Americans actually sided with us against Great Britain. And Orno's speech kind of went... Um, and it went like this. He said that uh, our white brothers, Americans, tell us that they came to our land to enjoy liberty and life. But their kin of England is coming to bind them in chains and to kill them. We must fight him. We will stand on the same ground with our brothers, the Americans. This is a very important point in not only American history, but Penobscot history. Because... When you look at Penobscot veterans, they have been fighting in defense of this country since the birth of this country. And according to my research, I found a petition in the State House, which was from a young uh, uh, a lady, a young lady who was petitioning the state because her father was killed in uh, defense of this country, and his name was White Francis, and he was actually killed during what was called the Penobscot Expedition in 1779. And so White Francis is, according to my research, is the first documented uh, casualty, Penobscot casualty, um, in defense of, of this country. And there were many more after him. Very interesting about that. I, I hadn't realized it was, uh, 
1779, you said. Yes. Hmm. I don't have a lot of um, information myself on the um, Native Americans. In the uh, military, but I find this uh, discussion of the historical context uh, fascinating when you think of, um, you know, what what they were involved in and all that they had been going through in such a short time and to be willing to um, to go to war um, in that manner that James describes, I think is fascinating. And um, I think that that's uh, a part of history, part of main history that gets eliminated quite often is the, uh, the Natives' contribution uh, to history and to the Revolutionary War efforts. I know that they were responsible for a number of key battles in the American Revolution, um, particularly in Castine and along the Bagaduce River, and uh, that they were instrumental because of their um, intimate knowledge of the landscape and the rivers. But um, it's, it's uh, fascinating to hear all this information pieced together in this manner. And there was also a very important battle in uh, Machias involving um, a victory. I believe it was the first victory for the Americans in the Re Revolutionary War. Uh, does that sound about right, Donna? Yeah, it kind of uh, brings to mind the story that Donald Soctoma tells. And I can't remember. He, he, uh, he mentions a Passamaquoddy who uh, asked permission to... Uh, to sh to fire, I think it was considered the the first shot on the East Coast or something, mm. on the Revolutionary War, and it, it was on this. He saw an officer on this ship, and he asked permission to sh to shoot, and uh, and as the story goes, legendary, you know how legends are made. <laughs> as the legend goes, but, uh, yeah. As the legend goes, this uh, this person was about a mile away. And the guy he he shot and uh, killed the uh, the ship's captain at a mile away, and that was a, the Passamaquoddy. Uh, uh, I think it was a chief, but I'm not I sure. But right. the Passamaquoddies were the f were uh, pretty active uh, in that Revolutionary War as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as um, most Wabanaki tribes were, um, and I had read an account where. It was actually their knowledge of the landscape and the river systems down east in the Machias River area that gave them the opportunity to get the upper hand on on the um, the British troops. So it was um, a very formidable victory there in that area. But I also uh, remember reading something about um, they had a huge uh, council of all of the, uh, like a sort of like a Wabanaki Confederacy council meeting, or to decide whether or not uh, they would support the Americans. And there was quite a a debate during that council, and some chose not to. Some chose to just leave and uh, uh, head for Canada. I think their first impression or their first thoughts were to remain neutral. Um, you know, clearly they they were political pawns that got caught up in this 
European imperialistic struggle. Um, and so I think that for the most part they were hoping to remain neutral, but were almost, you know, from both the French and the British being forced to choose some one side or the other to uh, to align themselves with. And not everyone sided with the Americans. I know the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy sided with the Americans, but I think um, the tri excuse me, the tribes in uh, New York and other uh, states actually sided with the British. Yeah. So of course, there was no uh, unanimity within, within the tribe. Just like there's there's none. Um, right. You know. Right. So it's always kind of like reminds me of well, if we all don't agree, then there's something wrong. But you know, it's just it's human nature not to agree, and that's one of the things that uh, we we you know we all chose our sides, and we all had our reasons for choosing our sides. Donner, in your introduction, you had uh, talked about the citizenship in 1924. Yes. And that's another thing that I find amazing uh, in discussing the historical context is when you realize that um, the tribes had been fighting with the Americans for so long, and it wasn't actually until 1924 that they were considered citizens of the United States. That's right. amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in the, in the Constitution, we're not considered you know, citizens. And then here in Maine, mm -hmm. uh, the natives didn't receive the right to vote until 1968. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And you think of all the contributions that they made to, to the country. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mentioned earlier about our relationship, a better relationship with the French and the reasons why we tended to um, ally with them. You know, there's that one incidence of, you know, the Weymouth kidnapping, and just a year before, Champlain came to Bangor and set up trade with the natives, um, the Penobscots there, and also brought um, Jesuit priests into the community and started to Christianize uh, the native populations, and that uh, Christian element also played a big part in our uh, allying with the uh, the French. And also, it kind of reminds me. Uh, I think uh, uh, Harold Prince was, uh, you know, he's he's a great historian as far as the Wabanaki uh, history goes, and. One of the stories he tells uh, had to do with the, an English ship that came and uh, took some prisoners, some Wabanaki prisoners, and uh, put them on the ship's deck and actually used them for uh, cannon fire. So that certainly didn't endear the, uh, the tribes to the English. Mm. There's um, down in the Bagadus area, um, the town of Castine is named for a French baron. He comes from southern France. His name was Jean-Vincent Abadet, and he came from a small town called Saint-Castin. And the town of Castine is named for his title. He was the baron of Saint-Castin. And he came to the area to uh, ad be the administrator of a fort that the French had built um, where... Castine is today on the small peninsula on the eastern side of the Penobscot Bay. 
and they had built it in 1635, and by 1670 it had changed hands so much that they sent this nobleman over there, very young, he was probably 18 years old, and um, to be in charge of this fort, and he essentially abandons the fort and chooses to live in the Indian village nearby and befriends the chief there named Madaka Wando. And uh, Jean-Vincent and Madaka Wando become friends, and Jean-Vincent learns the language and ends up marrying the very, according to Longfellow, the very beautiful um, daughter of Madaka Wando. Her name was uh, Molly Matilda. And um, she was baptized with that name, uh, Marie Matilda. There's no hard R sound in the Penobscot language, so her people called her Molly. And so Molly and Mathilde and um, the Baron get married, and they have um, several children, and uh, some who stayed here in in this um, this land, and others who went back to France with their with their father when he left uh, his wife here. And um, those, that family, that bloodline, is a chief bloodline. Madaka Wando's um, daughter carried the that hereditary chief line with her, and so with that marriage, our hereditary chief line gets melded with French nobility. It's pretty amazing how closely we're tied to the French, isn't it? Well, it it is. And um, they had a daughter named Claire, Claire de Saint-Castin. And she had a son who, in some records in Canada, was known as Berensis at a very young age, which is cis in the Penobscot language means little. And so he was basically the, the little baron. And um, he would grow up and um, very fair-haired, um, blue-eyed gentleman who we know of today as Chief Joseph Arnold. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so no uh, surprise that no. Yeah. Chief Joseph Arno sided with the Americans rather than the British, mm. considering his French bloodline. Hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But uh, the other thing, too, is, uh, is Bunny McBride has written a couple books. Uh, one is The, the Four Mollies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the real name of that book? Is it The Four Mollies? The four, um, uh, Women of the Dawn. Women okay, Women of, of the, the Dawn, Dawn, and it's about the Four Mollies. It's an excellent historical fiction about that time frame. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I like, like that book a lot. Yeah. And then the other one that she wrote was uh, Molly Spotted Elk. Um, and uh, and uh, Bunny McBride's husband, Harold Prince, we just talked about, He's is he coming out with a book, James, this summer on Native veterans? He is. I'm putting you in the spot. Yes, he is. He is coming out with a book about Native, uh, Native American veterans. And part of, um, actually, it worked as a really good segue, Maria. Uh, part <laughs> of... A chapter in this book is about uh, Penobscot uh, elder and veteran Charles Norman Shea. I'm now, glad you brought that up, but go ahead. What's interesting about Charles is not 
just that he, you know, grew up here in the community and at a very young age was uh, sent off to war as a medic in World War II. Um, got a, um, I believe, a silver star for his heroism on D-Day. Um, was later they captured the bridge at Ramagdan. He was part of the Big Red One, and they captured the bridge at Ramagdan, which was the last bridge across the Rhine. And in fact, it was all wired, ready to be blown up by the Germans as they were retreating. And uh, Charles and his colleagues, his fellow uh, um, infantrymen, captured the bridge. And it was shortly thereafter that Charles himself was captured as a POW and um, got out, uh, got home safely, and then actually re-enlisted. He was in the Army at that time, but actually re-enlisted in the Army and then again in the Air Force. And um, he, um, as, part of, as part of the project that Harold and Bunny were doing this book, they wanted Charles, who had never spoken about his experiences, Overseas in the war with his, his, he never even told his wife about uh, you know what took place during the war. Um, they decided that they wanted to take him to Normandy, start in Normandy, and retrace his steps to try to jog these memories. And part of part of the tools that they wanted to use was they asked Charles to keep a journal on this journey. And this journal. He decided that, since he had never told his wife anything, that he wanted to send these letters to Lily. She had passed about three years, four years before this trip. And so his journal starts, Dear Lily, I've never told you this before. But, and he starts to tell this, his recollections in this journal form. When Charles got back from this kind of mind-jogging experience, um, he got a phone call from Boston, from um, the consulate for the French embassy. I'm not sure of the exact title. Um, but he was asked, this gentleman was asked him to escort him to Washington, D.C., to the French Embassy, where Charles was presented with the Legion of Honor from um, President Sarkozy of France for his heroism on saving France from the Germans during World War II. And it was there was an interesting conversation that happened while Charles was being presented this Legion of Honor. It was being pinned on him by Sarkozy. Uh, Sarkozy, familiar with Charles's family history, because see, Charles is actually related to Chief Joseph Orno, who was related to the Baron, French nobility, and Sarkozy said, "You've been French longer than I have." And it was kind of a, a chuckle that went through the, you know, laughter that went through the room. Um, so that when he pinned that on there, it really brought history full circle that that whole story of our alliance with France during the colonial days was brought full circle here in modern times 
And so um, you can see that, um, you know, there's that, that continuity of, of history that, you know, it tends to, to repeat itself. The other thing about uh, Charles is that uh, he, he received the Silver Star in, uh, in the... Uh, the reason he received the Silver Star was he was on Omaha Beach and he was a medic at the time. And uh, he, he repeatedly, and, and the waters were very cold and, and treacherous and, and uh, soldiers were, like, were drowning, and, you know, plus being shot at and being hit. And he repeatedly would go into the water and drag, drag them out uh, to the safety of the shore. And uh, he was given a Silver Star for that for that uh, heroism on uh, Normandy Beach. I've asked Charles about why, how did, how, how did he ever survive that? And he said the only thing he really attributes to his survival was the prayers from his mother, that she was watching over him, and that she was home on Indian Island praying for him. You know, speaking of Indian Island, it was it was an interesting, you know, first of all, Indian Island had the largest participation in World War II than any community in the state of Maine you know, per capita. And so, I mean, it was, it was hardly any men here on the reservation during that time. We were either um, at war or exiled to Connecticut at the war factory. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember too that my father was in uh, World War II, and so were my my uncles. My uncle Frank was in uh, Korea, on mm-hmm. a on a ship. He was a Marine, and my father uh, was a member of the Tenth Mountain Division. And uh, when they landed on uh, on Normandy, the the uh, I think it was Normandy. Uh, he was one of the the uh, units that took helped take Mount Belvedere. And was in the Po Valley, and uh, and he tells he would tell the story of uh, being in the Po Valley, and uh, you know they're wa- he's a corporal, and they're walking down this path uh, in the mountains, and they look up, and all of a sudden there are forty or fifty Germans coming down the side of the hill with their hands high and uh, waving white flags, and uh, everyone is kind of like watching them come down, and my father sees that they all have. Uh, sees that there's weapons behind them and uh, he he yells and uh, lets them know when they hit the dirt and of course they uh, they you know they they save themselves and uh, and uh, shoot the Germans uh, and then after that incident uh, a uh, the 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 captain of the uh, the uh, the unit came up to my father and said uh, yeah I want to give you a uh, a field commission for for uh, you know, giving us this warning and saving our lives, uh, and wanted to make him a lieutenant, field lieutenant. And my father said, "No, I don't want it." And he would. I heard this story many times, and it it's affected my life in such a way that I had determined that if ever someone uh, gave me a chance to advance, I would never refuse them, and I would always take it. So that was a life lesson I learned from. From my father's stories of World War II. Yeah, my favorite story that Charles tells, and 
Um, being a medic, Charles isn't, um, he just doesn't have the personality for war stories. And, and in fact, he's kind of very humble about his experiences. And he, um, is re on many occasions, said, you know, he doesn't like war stories. But um, there was this, this one story he tells, which um, just really shows um, kind of the depth of this community, Indian Island, that we live in. It was on the, the night before the, um, the attack on Normandy, the invasion on the beach, D-Day, that he's on, he's on the ship with, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops, and he runs into Melvin Francis know a fellow friend from Indian Island and he said that you know for those moments that that he saw him and they just sat and talked there was um, there was no war because they talked about home they talked about Indian Island and so it was um, you know to me it really shows you know that connection to to place that that we have and then even in a foreign land, in circumstances such as that, they always, they always come home, whether it's mentally or... You know, I, wish, I wish we all you know, could have came home. We, we did lose uh, people in World War II. Um, it would be my great uncle, Donald Francis. They called him. They called him Spike, and he was my grandmother's brother, and he was lost. Um, his body has never been returned. He he died in the Philippines when um, the artillery kind of it was kind of a tank. Um, I guess it ran over a landmine, and uh, it blew up and killed only him. Everybody else in, on the vehicle was. Uh, survived yeah the uh the story about meeting someone from you from home uh when i was in uh, station in long Bend in vietnam i was a i did uh, the casualty uh reports for all of southeast asia and uh i happened to be featured on the front page of the stars and stripes and uh terry lola happened to read the article and say, oh, Donna's at Long Bend. So he had been in the field for uh, about a month or maybe a bit more. And when he came out of, the f out of the jungles, the first thing he did, he didn't take a shower. You know, he, he just ran right straight for Long Bend and uh, found me. And I was so surprised to see Terry. And he had a, a carton of cigarettes because I smoked back then. Uh, was very, very, very nerve-wracking, and I kind of needed something, so I did smoke. Uh, and so he brought me this carton of cigarettes. But he also uh, took a picture. I, I didn't really like people taking my pictures, and uh, and it, there was only one picture taken of me in Vietnam, and he took it. And um, I was at uh, 19, and I think you can see it on on. Uh, it's in the book. Yeah, I've I've seen that picture. Yeah, and. Uh, it was pretty amazing to see a fellow tribal member, uh, you know, in the in Long Bend, you know, in the 
in the in the dunes of the desert or whatever. We were like the 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 biggest, the largest army base in the world. Um, so it was pretty amazing. I know what picture you're talking about. I've seen that as well. And every time I look at that, I'm always amazed at what a young girl you look like. And how old I am now. <laughs> <laughs> no, so. But just really, you know, you're half a world away from from home and yeah. uh, young, very young. So, June 21st is Native American Veterans Day. Right. It is. Yeah. And um, it was interesting when uh, a few years prior to that, when um, Charles had returned from his trip over in Normandy with Bunny and Harold, there was um, a lot of publicity for Charles. And one of the things... Um, was he had got a call from the governor's office of the state of Maine, John Baldacci, wanted to make a certain day, I can't remember what day it was, but he wanted to make that Charles Norman Shea Day proclamation. And this state does this often. They will proclamate a certain day. That, um, but Charles refused it. He says, I don't want that. And, again, Charles is very humble guy. He didn't want a Charles Shea Day because to him it's not about him. And so he asked me to make the phone call to um, Governor Baldacci's office and uh, respectfully decline <laughs> this honor. And um, there was silence on the phone. And uh, they're like, um, excuse me? <laughs> and I says he wants to decline. Um, and so they asked why, and and they and so I said, but he would accept it on behalf of all Wabanaki veterans. He would accept it on their behalf. And so the office agreed that, uh, rightfully I think, um, to honor Charles by honoring others. And when he was receiving this honor from Governor Baldacci, this one-day honor, he kind of uh, jokingly said to Baldacci, this should be every year, Wabanaki Veterans Day. And uh, Baldacci said, yeah, it should. Kind of, I think, in jest. Um, but Charles never let go of that comment, yeah, it should. And he, uh, along with other people, pursued that. Um, until it was a couple of years ago was um, actually passed in the legislature that June 21st would be um, what was it? Native American Veterans Day. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a significance to the June 21st date. And uh, There is. There's a couple of significance, you know, and according to the Penobscot calendar, it's uh, it's the end of planting and sowing month, and it also ushers in the grubbing whole whole month. Um, but also, 235 years earlier is when um, Penobscot Chief Joseph Orono went to Watertown to give that speech, um, where we will stand on the same ground with our brothers, the Americans. Speech. Hmm. So that's. 
two significance. Yeah, and I, and I think that that significance should never be forgotten. And, and I think that it's uh, very important that we always recognize June 21st as Native American Veterans Day here in Maine. Uh, and I do want to thank Donald Soctoma, the Passamaquoddy representative, for submitting that, uh, that bill. And of course he did it in, in, uh, in uh, conjunction with, uh, with Charles in a lot of uh, uh, talk and, uh, you know, uh, they, they communicated quite a bit with each other as to what should be in the law and, mm -hmm. and uh, so, so Charles was really the force behind the law, but, but Donald actually went ahead and, and uh, put, that, uh, put that law, made it law. Well, actually, the governor signed it, so, yeah. Well, we don't need to give him any credit. <laughs> <laughs> Get us in trouble now. You're on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know these, um, this little journal that uh, Charles had kept? He asked me to read it. And, um, you know, I'm a grown 41-year-old man who started tearing up reading this. It was just so heartfelt. Um, you could you could really see um, that he had he had he misses his wife, and that um, he wished he would have told her these things. Um, and so he decided that he was going to. Um, he's getting them published. He's actually um, publishing this as a uh, as a book himself. So in addition to the Bunny and Harold book and the chapter on Charles is also this other book, um, which I think is far superior um, by Charles Shea, because it is this personal account. Mm -hmm. It is this touching, heartfelt um, journey, you know, re-journey for him, but he carries the readers with him. It's, it's wonderful. Well, do you know when that's coming out? I don't. Um, I know Harold and Bunnies is slated for the end of the summer, and I think shortly thereafter, um, if anybody's interested, in it's uh, Polar Bear and Company out of Solon, Maine, is the one who's um, publishing that for Charles. And also uh, Tilbury House is publishing uh, Harold and Bunnies' uh, book. Um, I'm not even sure what it's called, the one on Native American veterans. And so, the, both of those are on their websites, both the books uh, for pre-orders. I was just going to say, I'm sure that we'll have information about that on our website. We, <laughs> we org. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, also on there is, um, there's a section on Penobscot uh, veterans, uh, Native American veterans. And it was a speech that I had given um, 2009, and in a, um, a veterans recognition dinner, and uh, you know one of one of the things, um, and I, I want to wrap up with this, is um, we have a monument uh, at Nick Andrews Shore, and it and it shows all the Penobscot warriors who fought, fought in all these wars, and it's a very 
black and reflective stone, and it acts as a mirror. And it reflects, you know, my image back on me, but overlaid on my image are all the names of the men and women who make me proud to be a Penobscot and a veteran. And um, I just want to thank all the Native American veterans for um, their service. Absolutely. Anything, uh, Maria, your last comments? Um, I just want to reiterate what James said. Thanks so much for your service and your contribution to history. I uh, come at this sort of as a full-fledged dove, um, and I can still appreciate the contributions to the history and the historical context that these natives worked through um, on behalf of the country. Yeah, and I, I do want to say that none of us, none of us really want war. War is not, uh, as a friend of mine had a poster on a wall that said, war is not uh, good uh, for families and children. Uh, I do want to uh, end the show with a poem that I wrote after uh, uh, the Twin Towers uh, was attacked. And uh, I was driving uh, to uh, Pleasant Point that day and uh, was listening to all of this on the radio. It's very, very upsetting. Uh, so I, I wrote this, this poem called 10,000 Eagles. 10,000 eagles flew that day across the bright blue sky to meet the spirits on their way from fiery smoke-filled tombs. They soared above the dark black clouds billowing from the earth and hovered for a moment there and saw the face of doom. 10,000 eagles gathered and swooped down beneath the clouds. They found the spirits one by one and plucked them from their plight. They carried each new spirit through the black and hate-filled clouds. They gave them each a shelter wrapped in warm wings oh so tight. They gave strength and comfort too on their unexpected flight. On swift wings they flew towards their final destination where each spirit knew without any hesitation there would be peace, love, and harmony. They would forever be wrapped within the eagle's wings through all eternity. 10,000 eagles flew that day as all the world stood still and watched in shock and horror as the tragedy unfurled. Now we are left here on this earth to face the billowing clouds and our eyes search for the eagles as we say our prayers out loud. May our spirits soar on eagles' wings above the dark black clouds of hatred, murder, and re revenge that keep us hatred-bound. 10,000 eagles flew that day as all the world stood still. The eagles flew above those clouds. Perhaps someday we will. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to, to Webinaki Windows. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and uh, the music is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. And I want to thank co-host Maria Gerard, our, our guest James Francis, tribal historian of the Penobscot Nation, and our engineer Amy Brown. Please join us next, next month for another Webinaki Windows.